0: The reading is from Luke chapter 5. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing, but if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Here ends the reading.
1: To be honest, I don't know how to read the Bible sometimes. I kept wondering this week, are we supposed to take this text seriously? It seems sort of funny, all these fish and fish and fish are sort of funny, but it could be dark too, all these fish almost sink the boat. I'm sure there's a million ways to read it. And I suppose that straightforward is an option. But the story has several outlandish elements, as does the whole of Scripture, obviously. So straight isn't usually my go-to way. The Bible's weird. There's so many holes. You often don't get details or background that seem vital to making sense of a passage. If there's more than one account of something, as there are in the four Gospels, there are always discrepancies. It's totally a text that invites questions, even demands them. There's a rabbinic saying for this quality of the text. They say, the scripture cries out, interpret me, wonder about all sorts of stuff, throw me across the room, Actually, the rabbis don't say to throw the Bible across the room, but I think it's appropriate sometimes. Why does Jesus go out in a boat? The people press upon him because they long to hear the word of God, and he gets in a boat to teach them. That isn't the most outlandish part of the story, but it seems a little bit impractical logistically, considering wind, water, drift, a certain loss of control the sound of the waves lapping. I did see, though, that a website promoting tourism to the Sea of Galilee claims that there really is this small bay about a kilometer northeast of Tabgah, wherever that is, that has exceptional acoustic qualities. It's one of the most attractive places along the shoreline as well. The slope of the hill forms a natural amphitheater, rather like a Roman theater, the website says, And acoustical research has proven that as many as 7,000 people could hear a person speaking from a boat in this particular bay. I'm not sure what to believe. I think they know that it's not easy to hear someone speaking from a boat across water, and so they're trying really hard to work to make this story seem plausible. I say... Plausible, schmozzable. I think going for plausible is maybe not the best move when you're talking about the sorts of things that we talk about when we talk about God. Because we are more in the realm of mind-blowing mystery, a love that knows no bounds, concept, signification, Can't organize or contain this language is so obviously insufficient. Rather than test the acoustics, I might wonder about the symbolic elements in this story. Metaphor. What sort of art is perfectly factual, literal? The sea water has an enormous presence in the Bible and every. Mythology of every culture, ever, everywhere. The primordial chaos out of which life comes, its latent potentiality, creative potential, and its vaguely threatening at the same time, the unknown, the unknowable, deep, dark. The sea and the water cleanses and it drowns, it quenches thirst and it wipes out civilizations. It's definitely a thing that you can't grasp. It slips through your fingers. You can't shape it, mold it into what you desire. You can only hold water loosely, like in an open, cupped hand. If you try to grip it too hard, like in a fist, it flows away, and you are left gripping nothing. Maybe Jesus gets in the boat because he wants to teach from that place, people he's teaching are standing on solid ground, their feet planted firmly. But Jesus sits on the water, the ungraspable, the unfathomable deep, and teaches from there. Maybe he's like, loosen your grip, man. Solidity is illusion. Once he's done teaching the land people, Jesus suggests Simon Peter, the seaman whose boat he's commandeered. He says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. This is the story where Jesus gets his first disciples. Peter will eventually lead the church. Jesus says, put out into the deep, cast down your nets, and see what comes up. It's almost like Jesus is suggesting Some Jungian journey into the yonic depths before they get started on this whole thing. Jesus is concerned with what's below the surface. Water is the most common symbol for the unconscious. What do you find in the deep? What cold-blooded, primitive creatures, sea monsters, octopi, what fears, needs, motives, desires lie hidden under the surface The gospel of John has this story too though in his book it happens after the resurrection in John's version of the legend he specifies curiously i think that the net brings up 153 different kinds of fish That sounds about right at least for my unconscious When Simon Peter sees the slithering morass that comes up in the nets, he is clearly traumatized. There are so many fish that the nets begin to break and the boats begin to sink. Stephen Moore, a New Testament scholar of the more interesting variety, says, faced with the subaqueous representatives of his own unconscious, writhing grotesquely in the analytic net... Note that Luke says in three different places that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be made known. Simon falls down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man. Acquainted with his deep, he's knocked off his feet. But not for long. It's notable. That's an understatement. How little background, how little information we get in the Gospels about the Apostles. We learn way more about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. You actually get a little sense about who they were as people. The disciples found the church. We know about Jesus through their accounts. The things they pass on. The Christian faith depends on them and we know so little about them really. Can we trust them? Are they reliable? I mean, what little we do learn about them from the Gospels might actually lead us not to trust them. It's so strange, the Bible. They don't come across as reliable. This is so blatant that it is unlikely that it is unintentional. The stories about them mostly emphasize their unreliability. They argue repeatedly amongst themselves about who is the greatest at the worst times, like at the Last Supper. It's so inappropriate, it's ridiculous. You have to wonder if it's meant to be funny. They fall asleep when Jesus asks them to stay awake with them. They all leave him in his greatest hour of need. Peter, what a strange man for Jesus to call the rock on which the church is built. What a strange man to give the keys of the kingdom to. It may say something important, if not exactly complimentary, about the church. Like, maybe the revelation of God's grace is not supposed to be built on a rock. Maybe it's not the sort of thing that involves keys. Like, these aren't really the sort of things you talk about when you talk about God, the unfathomable love that knows no bounds. Peter, he swears he would never, ever, ever deny Christ or go with, to him with prison he'll go to him to death and then he immediately denies him not once but three times the gospel of mark portrays peter as almost utterly inept john seems to respect him but definitely emphasizes his lack of insight compared to the beloved disciple paul finds peter shallow and unconvincing he was the leader of the church Self important, unself aware. In the story that we read tonight, he's appalled by what comes up from the depths. He is so appalled he confesses, I am a sinful man. But later on in Acts, he claims, Nothing unclean has ever passed my lips. I think unlikely. Maybe he's not just unself-aware. Maybe he's a liar. On this rock, I will build my church. Sounds about right, honestly. Not to be overwhelmingly critical of the church or anything. But the church does get ugly right off the bat. In the book of Acts... Part two of Luke's gospel, there's a passing moment where everyone's sharing everything in common and it's all love. And then this one couple fails to come forth with some bit of property and they are struck down dead immediately, like suddenly it's all fascist tribunal. The apostles start attracting people to their message, the way they call it. And by the sixth chapter of Acts, they're actually saying it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve the tables. What? Jesus stressed so much that they should be servants. Let the greatest among you become as servants. I am among you as one who serves. Jesus ate with sinners. The Gospels make a pretty big deal about this. We learn from Paul in Galatians that after a while... Peter began to refuse to eat with gentiles. What's more, he wanted to get rid of the women. If you believe the Gospel of Thomas, which quotes Peter as saying, "Let Mary, he means Mary Magdalene, leave us, for women are not worthy of life." Great guy by chapter 5 in Acts, the multitudes are carrying their sick into the streets so that Peter's shadow might fall upon them. Peter's shadow? By chapter 7, the apostles are preaching something that sounds like it's all us and them, the Christians and the unrepentant Jews. The consequences of this polemic against the Jews plays out with unspeakable violence, even through the 20th century? How could this thing which was about life and love and justice all fall apart so quickly? Someplace in the Midrash it says, that truth is shattered into a thousand pieces when God throws it down to earth. Gospels are decidedly not about the disciples. But once Jesus is gone, that doesn't last long. It's possible that Peter wasn't a very good theologian. Maybe he wasn't interested in that. He just wanted to build something, and he liked glory. He never thought Jesus should give up power. When he says so, Jesus says, "'Get behind me, Satan.'" Jesus calls Peter Satan and the rock on which the church is built. Interesting. Maybe Peter could never really see the depth of the mercy, the love that knows no bounds, even from the beginning. It's too much about him. He sees what is hauled up from the deep and he tells to Jesus to depart from him. Literally he says get out of my neighborhood. He meets the incarnate God and he just feels ashamed. Isn't that the opposite of what you'd think someone who loves you would make you feel? Someone who is exceedingly gracious? Peter is so traumatized. But Jesus says, Don't be afraid. Though Jesus is as uninundated by the reek of what's come up from the deep, from the weight of it sinking the boat. Peter's mortified, but Jesus says, don't be afraid. Maybe, like, Peter, look at it clearly, and then move on. Then Jesus says, it's often read as if he says this sort of prescriptively, but maybe it's more like he says it, resignedly. From now on, you will be catching men. That is not a lovely image, viscerally, catching people alive. Or even biblically, the Hebrew text tended to use the image negatively, reflecting the fish's perspective so glaring, as Russell said last week when he was talking about the passage just before this one, is that Jesus announces his mission as one of releasing, freeing people. When he says to Peter, from now on, you'll be catching people, it's almost like he's saying, I guess from now on you'll be working against me. Because catching is pretty much the opposite of releasing Jesus isn't giving instructions. Maybe it's more like he's giving a warning to his disciples, to the church. Maybe he knows what's going to go down. You will catch people, I'll release them. You'll catch them, I'll release them. You'll catch them, I'll release them. And so the story goes on and on and on. Karl Barth says the historical existence of the church is legitimate only insofar far as it refrains from giving specific weight to its own possibilities, developments, and achievements. Only insofar that it keeps from interesting its members in these things, and therefore in itself. Instead of pointing to Jesus, the incarnate God, the unfathomable, deep, gracious God who hauls up even death itself, and says, don't be afraid. I think it speaks to the immensity of God's graciousness that Jesus seems all in all pretty relaxed about allowing these people, Peter, Paul, me, you, Luther, Baptist, Amy Grant, to be his witnesses. It speaks to some sort of confidence Some sort of long, relaxed view that is not anxious at all. That would be like the grace of God. Don't be afraid. I mean, how can we not be afraid? It's so ugly, so often, the church. Anti-Semitic here. Misogynist here and there and there and there and there. Destructive, burning heretics. Literally capturing indigenous people and forcing conversions. But maybe it's almost like the inevitable nature of the beast, that its own way will be failure. Not that's, that that's an excuse or that we shouldn't be constantly reforming ourselves. But the church as an institution is uniquely insufficient. Because its reason for being is to witness something to us, something that is outside of itself, to a God that is ungraspable, beyond grasping. The foundation, if that's even a very good word for it, you you aren't supposed to be able to stand on it or plant your feet. God is not something that you can quit looking for, faith is searching. Wandering, listening, asking. You're not supposed to stop looking. A net can catch just about anything, but it can't catch the sea. The water flows in and out of it. This is hopeful to me. Hold it loosely. Because if we captured it, we'd probably kill it.